Welcome once again, fellow geeks and geekettes. This is Seth, a.k.a. Xandrax, the mayor of Geekville and the host of Geekville Radio. We are on day 13 of NAPOD POMO, a.k.a. National Podcast Post Month. We're continuing through our Geekville Radio anthology. Now, to some, the number 13 is considered a dark or an unlucky or possibly even... An, an evil number. So we're using that as a reason to post something from our horror-themed podcast, Examining the Dead. This show goes back about six years to 2017, and the host of Examining the Dead, Crazy Train, as well as myself and Uncle Greg, talk about the West Memphis Three, and that is a real-life horrific crime that happened in the early 90s in West Memphis, Arkansas. I think, I think just about anybody who remembers the early 90s, especially if you lived in the South, probably remembers at least some of this. And if you don't know, then I'm going to give you a warning now. This cannot be emphasized enough. Examining the Dead is the only show that we do that has a mature rating to it. Some of it might be language, yes, but it's mainly because of mature content. And this story is a perfect example of that. I cannot overstress how much listener discretion should be advised here. It's very possible. At least some of you who listen to this will find it disturbing. I found it disturbing, and I was one of the people doing the show. So consider yourself warned. This is not for children. This is not for people who might be a little squeamish. I know it's just a podcast, but there's definitely some uh, very grisly, very graphic details that are talked about in this show. Like I said, if you're familiar with West Memphis 3 case, you know what what to expect. If not, here's your warning. This one gets pretty disturbing. So with all that aside, we're going to travel back to 2017, where Crazy Train takes center stage hosting Examining the Dead, And he, myself, and Uncle Greg talk about the West Memphis Three. Geekville Radio. And now, a look into the crystal ball. As much as we like to watch horror and read horror, people like me and Greg, even even guys like us can be scared by real life things. Um, So I figured I'd start out and I'd just... For those of you who don't know, I'll give you a little background of what it is, and then we're just going to open up a little bit of a discussion, and I'll throw some questions y'all's way, and you can give me answers and throw me any questions, if that's all right with you two. Is that all right? Certainly. Absolutely. Yeah, and yeah I will say that, um, yeah, touching on what you said there, um, the reason that horror movies really don't scare me at all is because real life is far more frightening, and this is a prime example of that. Yeah, I, mean, not I, I can't. For the crimes that were committed, but for the... Uh, miscarriage of justice that followed for many people involved mm-hmm. yeah so I, said, I think it's a very multi-layered thing that will and we'll, we'll break that down as we go for those of you who aren't familiar on uh may 5th 1993 in a town uh, the town of west memphis arkansas which is directly over the mississippi river from arkansas uh, memphis tennessee it's essentially a suburb of memphis tennessee uh three young eight-year-old boys christopher byers michael moore and stephen branch did not come home when they were supposed to come home. It was getting dark. The parents got worried. They reported to the police. A manhunt was put forth. When daylight came the next day on May 6th, a juvenile officer saw a child's tennis shoe floating in a creek in a wooded area near where the boys lived. Uh, Called over another police officer who accidentally fell into the creek as he was trying to get the shoe out and felt something on his leg and pulled up the, the... dead and mutilated body of one of the boys. Um, of course, what would happen to something like that, all the police come in, they declare a crime scene, and they discover in the creek the body of the naked, um, mutilated, and hog-tied bodies of all three of these beautiful little, little baby boys. Uh, and like I said, if you do any research into this, you'll probably come across these pictures, and be forewarned, they are quite disturbing. Mutilation to the genitalia, to their faces, obviously a very horrific crime. The bikes they had been riding were found farther down the creek, also in their creek. Their clothes were found wrapped around sticks that had been shoved into the, into the creek bed in, in mud. And, of course, a huge investigation is, is launched. 
during the course of the investigation, the police, quite frankly, if you go and look at the stuff online, there were a lot of suspects. And they did a, re- they did a lot of investigating into a lot of different people. But it, uh, they begin to focus on the idea that this was a ritualistic murder because of, the, of some of the sexual nature of the crime. And uh, for those of you that didn't live at that time or have forgotten, mid to late 80s up and through you know, the early 90s, there was a thing that was dubbed the Satanic Panic in the United States where there were – Geraldo did a show on it and 2020 did a show on it and, and it was all over the news – that there were just boatloads of crimes being done in the United States from uh, kidnapping, brainwashing, child molestation to murder that was being done by people who were parts of satanic cults. And these crimes were being committed in that. And that was kind of becoming the focus of the West Memphis Police Department's investigation. Uh, About a month after the, the, the initial discovery of these three murdered young boys, they had narrowed their focus down to some local young teens. Um, and they had a break in the case, finally, about a month later, when one teen named Jesse Miss Kelly Jr., who was 17 at the time, uh, was brought in for questioning because he was, they thought he might know something about who did this. Uh, during the course of their interviewing, interrogating, you can argue which it was, uh, he gives a confession. He was there and he was involved in the murders of these two young boys with two other teenagers, 16-year-old Jason Baldwin and 18-year-old Damian Eccles. They all three are arrested and charged with the murder and they are, their court dates are set and it is decided that they will be tried in separate trials because Jesse refuses to testify against the other two defendants. So he is tried by himself and a short time later, uh, Baldwin and Eccles are tried together. All three are found guilty with very little physical evidence um, presented at the, at, at, at the pros- uh, by the prosecution. Most of it swings, especially at Jesse Miss Kelly's trial, on his, on his tape confession. Um, and both Jesse Miss Kelly and Jason Baldwin are given life, in, uh, given life sentences without a uh, chance of parole. And Damien Eccles is given the death penalty by lethal injection. Well, about the same time all this is going on, it has made such a national fervor because it's a very it's a very sensationalized case. I mean, you've got the satanic overtones and it's it, it's small children and these are young kids who are, are you know uh, who are being convicted of the crime. This is the kind of stuff that's, that's you know custom made for Hollywood. Two filmmakers from New York, uh, Joe Berlanger and the late Bruce Sanofsky, who are documentarians get the green light from HBO to go down to West Memphis and record the going ons to make a documentary. And they do. And they make this documentary and it's named uh, paradise lost the child murders at Robin hood Hills, because the Robin hood Hills was the name of the area where, where the Creek was, where they found the bodies. Um, during this documentary, uh, the filmmakers kind of really feel that the three young men are being railroaded, that they are essentially, Singled out because they were weird. Um, they were all three of them were uh, headbangers. They all three of them had criminal juvenile criminal records. Um, so they were essentially they feel that these young men were a part of a witch hunt, and that the West Memphis Police Department had already decided. And so that's kind of the, the crux of their documentary. This documentary was didn't released until 1996, two years after they're convicted and have been in prison for two years, and are in the process of their uh, appeals process. It becomes quite popular, and it, and it does very well on HBO with a lot within the entertainment community, both in front of and behind the camera. Uh, producers, uh, musicians, actors, who who really think, well, these these kids are innocent and and they're being railroaded, and I can do something about that. They make it a, a, a cause. And um, they begin to do what they can to help fund and further the investigation to, to get who the three boys, Damian Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miss Kelly Jr., who by this time are dubbed the West Memphis Three, to prove their innocence and have them exonerated and, and released from prison. Uh, that snowballs into a second Paradise Lost movie called Paradise Lost 2, Purgatory, that is released in 2000 and continues with the appeals process. And, and it seems like during the appeals process that they're, 
the the state of Arkansas and particularly the area they're from and the judge that originally heard the trial, David Burnett, are just hell-bent to make them stay there, convinced that they were not wrong. And in the second movie, they bring forth the idea that one of the young boys' adopted stepfathers, uh, uh, John Mark Byers, was actually the killer and presents some pretty damning evidence in that particular documentary. Well, then there that that doesn't go anywhere. And um, fast forward to 2007, they have now caught the eye of Peter Jackson, the you know director of Lord of the Rings trilogy, who reaches out to one of the convicted, Damien Eccles' wife, which, you know, by the way, is a woman he met who was also thought she was innocent and met him while he was in prison and, and got married to him. Uh, they fell in love and they got married while he was in prison on death row. Uh, she is obviously spearheading the campaign to have her husband and these other two uh, gentlemen, because by the time they're grown men, uh, freed. Peter Jackson says, I'll help you any way I can. And financially does. He financially, personally finances uh, the defense team hiring some of the best forensic specialists in the world to look at the evidence and see if they can find anything new that could reopen the case and, and get a retrial. A lot of it's DNA evidence that obviously wasn't available in 1993. They are finally get a win in 2009 uh, at, in the Arkansas Supreme Court that allows for an evidentiary hearing to have this new evidence uh, presented. While all this is going on, the third Paradise Lost movie is being filmed. And before they're done filming, there is a plea deal that is copped by a new judge and a new prosecutor and new defense attorneys that allows the three gentlemen to enter what is called an Alfred plea. An Alfred plea is a very strange and oxymoronic part of uh, United States Code of Justice, and it's different from state to state. But it was a case between a man in the 1960s in North Carolina and the state of North Carolina that made it all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States. His name was Alfred. And it essentially allows a person who has been convicted of a crime to plead guilty for the crime while maintaining publicly his innocence, thus allowing him to avoid a, a, a heavier penalty for a, a greater crime. So the three gentlemen enter an Alfred plea, publicly state they're innocent, but go down on the records as convicted felons. And as far as the state of Arkansas is concerned, the case is closed because they have three men who pled guilty to these murders and they are released on their time served, which at that point was 18 years and, and 72 days or something like that. But um, West of Memphis was made after the, after the fact about two years later with Damien Eccles, who was considered the ringleader of this group, produced by him and Peter Jackson. And like I said in our review, it had the benefit of hindsight because it was done after everything was done. And it also brings forth the idea that yet another stepfather, Terry Hobbs, was the, was the possible killer. But anyway, it's a fascinating case. Uh, all the documentaries are good, but I would forewarn anyone, remember they all do take the idea that these guys are innocent and they present it in that way. Um, there is a boatload of information online, both pro and anti these guys' innocence. I find it fascinating, and the reason I wanted to talk about it is because I understand at certain levels what a lot of other people don't understand about this case. I was a headbanger who lived in the South in this time period. I mean, these gentlemen are not much younger than me, and they're around the same age as you and Greg, I believe. Are they not? Who would put it about right? Yeah. You're, you're 41, right, Seth? And you're 38, Greg? 36. 36. So you're a couple years younger than the youngest, which is Jason Baldwin, and you're the exact same age as Jesse Miss Kelly. Seth. So these guys mm -hmm. are your age, you know? Uh, but I remember that time period. There was a legitimate satanic panic. Oh, yeah. Do I think, do I think it was played up by the, by the, the documentarians? Yeah. Because like I said, it makes for, good, makes for a good movie. But it was real. It did happen. I remember it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was... Now, I wasn't as over the top as these three kids were. You know, I was also a jock. I, I mean, I wore the I wore Ozzy and Iron Maiden Metallica shirts to school, but I didn't have the super duper long hair. I didn't have, uh, you know, I, I, I was familiar with it, but I wasn't as into every aspect of it as these guys were. And so and also I wasn't from, uh, you know, uh, Greenville is, a, is a, a roughly the same size as West Memphis for just for, for, for some to give you an idea. West Memphis, Arkansas is is a town that is about 20 a town of about 26,000 people. 
It is, like I said, it's a suburb of Memphis, Tennessee. It's the largest city in Crittenden County, Arkansas. It's the county seat. Um, and it has about a 60-40, uh, 55-45 ratio of black to white. So it's fairly racially even. Very poor. So over 20% of the population lives below poverty level. And as of 2010, the average median single home income is 29000 Family income annually is 33000 That's a poor area. You know, let's be honest. And the, the education rate is very low there. And it has an extremely high crime rate and violent crime rate. The crime rate in West Memphis back then and today is about four times above the, the, uh, the uh, national average for other cities of that size. And the violent crime rate is about six times above the, above the national average for other cities of that size. So, you know, it, I'm trying to give people a picture of the town, you know, what it's like. Uh, a lot of trail. I've been to West Memphis. A lot of trailer parks. A lot of, um, lot of of housing projects. Um, it's 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 unique in the sense it's one of only two places in the state of Arkansas outside of Indian reservations where gambling is legal. Uh, they they have a Greyhound racing track there that was literally stones throw away from the murder site. So it's it's a it's a very strange community. You know, uh, I think it's hard for people that are not from the south especially the people even in the South to relate to it because it is such a uneducated crime ridden, uh, you know, low income area. And so, uh, I'm sure a police force, there's not a lot of tax revenue. The police force is probably under, undermanned, under, uh, uh, sort of underfinanced. And they're probably to their limit because we're talking about how high the crime is there already. And then something like this comes along. Um, so, you know, it's just, it just, it just, uh, you know, it's just a weird thing. I think, um, and like I said, I've done a lot of research, uh, a few other facts I want to bring up and then I'm going to, I'm going to ask you guys some questions. Jesse, miss Kelly, the, the boy who gave the original confession, it is of note. He is, has an IQ of 72. I work in a field that deals with that. 72 is borderline, uh, mentally challenged to use yeah, the very po- politically incorrect term. He is mildly mentally retarded. Yeah. So when he gave this confession, he had essentially, and this was this was this was sworn to on the on the on the stand by a, a psychiatrist, he had about the functioning level of, of an eight-year-old. It's also of note that Damien Eccles, the ring leader, had a long, lengthy history of uh, mental illness, had been in and out of hospitals, documented, and a lot of these are not brought up in the documentary. These are things you have to go and research. Several times he is has been documented in, in, in you know other affidavits and other documents from hospitals. He has drank the blood of other children, claimed verbally that it gave him power. He's on record as, as of killing stomping a dog to death when he was like 16. I can see why they might have targeted a kid like that. You know, sure. uh, I'm not saying he did it, but I'm saying the guy the guy actually had issues. Okay. And it's also never brought up in any of the doc- documentaries. Damien Eccles was 18 and was already on full-time disability for mental illness from the from the federal government. So that I think should give you an idea, you know, into it, you know what it was. And and the thing is, I, I would watch these things. I knew that kid. Hell, I see that kid today at where I work. You know, um, I don't think a lot of them are really into Satanism or into witchcraft, but I do think that they are so scared that they'll do things to scare other people to keep them away. You know, it's like the, it's like them putting up that wall. I don't know, and I but I have read some of his stuff from the mental hospitals. It's the kind of stuff I look at every day as as a QA director at, at a mental hospital for kids. You know, he's not that unusual, uh, but I don't think a lot of people in the public know that. But it's a bizarre thing. So, Greg, I, you said you were a little younger, but you said you do remember the Satanic Panic. You grew up in Pittsburgh. You didn't grow up in the South. You grew up in a big city. But well, I'm guessing uh, I'm uh, not quite. Um, I'm part of the greater Pittsburgh area. I, I actually uh, make my home in um, Butler County, which is directly north of Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Uh, about an hour's, well, less than an hour's drive worth. I'm actually closer to 40. Well, then that, that is interesting. So you essentially, where you live, would be like West Memphis in, in the sense that it's a suburb of, of a major city. I mean, Memphis is a major city. Pittsburgh's a major city. Sure. You know? sure. Uh, okay. People, a lot but, of people don't realize how rural... Um, Pennsylvania can be outside of Pittsburgh. Oh, oh yeah. I do. No, there's a yeah. reason the Amish live all up in central north or south central Pennsylvania. South uh, central and Amish are two words that probably should never be used together. But anyways, <laughs> but, 
Yeah, yeah, we see them around town. I mean, people hire them to do um, construction jobs and things like that. And I mean, if you go up uh, a little further north of here, you'll get you get horses and buggies on the road. Uh, off topic, best, and I'm a southern boy who likes you know the good hunter's breakfast. Best breakfast I've ever had was at an Amish bed and breakfast in York County, Pennsylvania. But anyways, I digress. <laughs> but so, do you remember, even though you were younger, you were a headbanger. You listened to some of these bands, you know, like Slayer and Metallica. Do oh, you remember man. getting weird? Yeah, you remember getting. Do you remember getting at that at that time period getting weird looks from older people because of that? Well, yeah, a little bit, and there was always, um, which I don't know, maybe that was part of the, yeah, my way of um, uh, flipping, rebelling, as I walked around everywhere. But uh, right, when when you're an angsty teenager, you do these things. But right. but yeah, I mean, I still enjoy the music to this day. Right, um, right. It, but yeah, it's uh, so really. This case kind of resonated with me that yeah these guys were getting picked on because they were in a metal man and, and right. this is this is so unjust and that's why and that's why we had guys like uh, Henry Rollins and all these major Eddie Vedder and Johnny Depp and yeah uh, Henry Rollins did a whole album of Black Flag covers with an all star cast of other musicians yeah and, like Lemmy and and Chuck D and you know yeah yeah and all the guys we've described I think we can all see now even as adults. Yeah, we understand why they're celebrities, but they probably started youth as outsiders too before they became actors and musicians, you know? <laughs> um, and, I, and they've all openly said that was kind of why they were attracted to this case, you know? In fact, I think I remember one of the reasons I was even drawn to it, and I think you had told me you were too. The first time I ever heard about this was about 96, 97 when the first documentary came out. And this was the first time that Metallica had ever allowed their music to be used in any kind of movie, you know? Yes, yeah, that was what so, got my attention. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> you know, I mean, it worked. I was, yeah. I'd be lying if I didn't say I remember watching it the very first time. I was a young married guy with a with a young child of my own, and I'm watching this movie. And the opening credits are to "Welcome Home Sanitarium," which is my all time favorite Metallica song. Uh, you know, and I'm going, well, this is kind of cool. You know, <laughs> not really knowing what the movie was. You know, I just knew it was a documentary, and I knew it was about some satanic cult, which. By that point, the satanic panic had kind of been disproven by law enforcement experts and had been removed. But I knew this was from a time when it was going on. And I guess that's what first piqued my interest. Seth, I'd ask you, I mean, you were not a headbanger like we are. You listened actually to almost the exact opposite, to a lot of Christian rock, and you listened to some country. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm sure you knew kids like that growing up in Chicago, didn't you? Oh, the yeah. kind of outcast, the goth, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I remember the whole back mask scare, like, you know, mm -hmm. I, I, Ozzy Osbourne has these uh, satanic messages that you can only hear when you play the song backwards. Right, right. You know, I mean, you've been to the South and you have kinfolk from the South. Mm -hmm. um, is it, you think it's unfair for me to say, even though I am a Southerner, that that kind of, that kind of, of ideology behind a cop would be something that you could see happening in that time frame in that part of the world more than you would in, say, Chicago or, or, or Pittsburgh or places like that? Yeah, and it, it, I think in a way, this is probably going to sound wrong with the way I'm trying to say it, but okay. you, get, you, you get caught up in this mindset, and in a way, it almost kind of makes it more marketable because it's a better story. Because right. it, it, it's current with the controversial times. I don't know if that makes any sense. but No, no I think you're leading credence to what I said when we reviewed West of Memphis. The, when you watch a documentary, you have to realize they're still trying to make a buck. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, and if it bleeds, it leads. We've, all, we've talked about that many times here and on other podcasts we do. You know, it was sensational. But, but anyway, you know, that, that was, that was kind of what got me into it. And I'm one of those people because I am fascinated by true crime and stuff. I started doing research early, you know, early on and have, you know, forgot about it. It's been something that kind of, you know, kept my attention for a couple of weeks and I move away. And when I realized I hadn't seen it, and I, like I said, a few weeks ago, when I realized I hadn't seen the, 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 the West of Memphis documentary, I found it. And then I decided we would do this on the podcast. I started doing some more research. Have either one of you had any chance to go online and, and do anything beyond just any of the documentaries to, to educate yourself on all the facts? Um. I went back and uh, looked at looked up um, a few articles and looked at the Wikipedia and and I did mm -hmm. watch the, I think the first two Paradise Lost documentaries when they first aired on HBO which that's been you know, twenty years like ago said, now yeah yeah I said 1996 and 2000 yeah uh, what about you Seth did you do any other research beyond just the documentary 
Uh, I did find a TV documentary. I think it was on the ID channel. Uh, so I, mm. I did watch oh, that, but as far yeah, as reading... Yeah, Jones show? Yes, yeah, yes. I know she did one. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, but I didn't really have much time to do much reading other than... I think I glanced through the Wikipedia, but you know, I, mm. I, I, I did crash study. Right. Well, I mean, here's some interesting facts that aren't brought up in the documentary. And, and I'm not going to say right now, I will at the end tell you what I think about the West Memphis River. I think they're innocent or I think they're guilty, though my opinion doesn't really matter, but I'll still voice it. Um, Jesse Miss Kelly... Uh, uh, his made his defense has always been from the original trial to the time he took he took the Alfred plea. I was coerced. I was coerced into saying this. That was the, the route his defense lawyer took. He's you know mildly mentally retarded. He was easily manipulated. He was essentially grilled by the police without parental consent for an extremely long time. And he eventually just told the police what they wanted to hear. Okay. Then why did Jesse Miss Kelly also confess three more times after he gave that after he gave that initial confession? Twice to his lawyers and once to the coercion expert that they hired to testify on the stand for him. Just an interesting question. These are documented. You can find them. Now we'll say this about his his other confessions. All four of them are different. <laughs> there and again, but, and that's the thing about this case is, is you get into it like heavily like I did. It's like it's one main you know like trunk of a tree that goes up, but then there's a gazillion little branches that go off everywhere. And it just can, and it can, it's like you, the reason it became, it's fascinating to the public is you can't write this fucking shit. There, there are Hollywood writers that would love to be able to write how convoluted and crazy the stuff is with this case. It's just insane everywhere you go. Even if you move away from the West Memphis three to the, some of the other, peripheral and related things it's just so bizarre it's just it's crazy you know um uh, one of the p possible other suspects uh is they've nick they've dubbed mr bojangles are either one of you familiar with mr bojangles i'm familiar with the song but as far as the the the, the uh, person they're talking about that because that was the restaurant right right the night of the murders the and for those of you who don't know who are from outside the South, Bojangles is a chain of fried chicken fast food restaurants here in the South, which I can't stress is awesome. They're great. They they have a Cajun style. They make dirty rice as one of their sides, you know, with little bits of sausage and 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 uh, and and uh, peppers in it and Cajun spices. But anyways, I digress. There's <laughs> the Bojangles there in West Memphis. Calls the calls the police the night of the murders. Now at that time the cops didn't know that the child the children were dead. They were they remember they were still doing the manhunt. They think that they're they're looking for three missing kids, right? So while this is going on, the, the manager of the Bojangles calls around nine thirty that night, saying, uh, "I think y'all need to send somebody up here. We just had a black man covered in blood and mud. Remember this was a very bloody crime, and there's it was on muddy banks of a creek, and he's really disoriented, and he went into the ladies' room." So the police go up, but they don't go into the restaurant. They just pull through the drive-thru and talk to the manager through the drive-thru window. But the next morning when the kids are, when, when the bodies are discovered, they send, you know, a crime scene unit to the, to the restaurant and um, they collect some sunglasses that they believe belong to him and took some uh, bloody paper towels that he'd obviously used to clean up in the bathroom and some scraping, blood scrapings off the wall where he had apparently leaned against the wall. Well, that comes up during one of the trials, and one of the West Memphis police detectives has to admit that uh, they asked for where the, the test results. He lost that stuff. You can't make that up, man. You can't mm -hmm. make that shit up. I mean, yeah. are you kidding me? This is another. I mean, you're talking. This guy is literally within two miles of a crime of, of, of a crime scene, which they don't know that at the time, but they do. You know, within 24 hours, you collect obvious that could maybe either exonerate this guy could, or, or 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 you know damn him. And you lose the evidence, but he was nicknamed Mr. Bojangles by those involved in, in, you know, people like me who were just casually involved in investigating it. They never found that guy. They don't know who he is. Because there's something else that's, that, that's to be, you need to explain about the actual crime scene. It backed up to two or two major interstates run through the city, I-55 and I-40. At the time of the murders, there was a 24-hour truck stop and 24-hour truck wash. Uh, I mean, and it's, I mean, literally adjacent to the crime scene. There's a retention pond behind this truck stop. And if you walk around the retention 
pond, there's a trail that leads to where the, where the creek was, leads within 100 feet of where the creek was where the bodies were found. It's that close. Heavily populated, a lot of transient traffic. That particular truck stock has since been closed down, but at the time of the murders, no. I mean, to go back to the Jesse Miss Kelly, well, his confessing two, three more times. Even though he got the details different in every confession, one thing that was in all confessions but the one he gave to the police was that he was drinking that night and that he was drinking Evan, Evan Walker whiskey. And he says in all three of the confessions post the one that he gave the police that after he left when he saw that the boys were getting killed and he couldn't stomach it, so he left. And that he walked under an underpass and finished the bottle of whiskey and threw it down there. Now, he gave this confession to his attorney. Documented his 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 attorney went back to that overpass and found a broken Evan Evan Williams or yeah Evan Williams sorry Evan Williams whiskey bottle right where he said it would be. How bizarre is that? You know what I'm saying? I mean it mm-hmm. it is Evan Williams. It's not it's not a uh, you know a, a, an off brand. There's a lot of Evans Williams and it's and finding a broken whiskey bottle underneath a, a highway overpass in a heavily trafficked area like that is not you know unlike it's a lot of circumstantial stuff, but it still makes you wonder. You know. Uh, you probably didn't know about that one, did you, Greg? About the the whole whiskey bottle and the multiple confessions? Uh, not really, but um, yeah, like nothing surprising me with this case. Uh, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so much ridiculousness from top to bottom. Mm-hmm. And I know there was two other. Uh, what was it? Uh, Christopher Morgan and I cannot remember the other boy's name. They were two other local teens that were, you know, in that initial list when the cops decided some teens had to do this. They were some of the ones that were they were on that list that also had the three that they were eventually convicted. The night after the murder, they leave West Memphis and go to Oceanside, California, unannounced, to visit one of the guy's sisters. And West Memphis is so under so much deluge of investigation, they make contacts with the Oceanside Police Department and say, hey, can you, retain, can you detain these guys and question them for us? And they did. And they both agreed to polyclaft tests, which they failed. <laughs> And one of them actually made a confession, but he was, I I've seen the video of the confession. He was very skittish and looked like he might've been on something. At one point, the police officer leaves the interrogation room and he stands up and tries to cover the camera with a, with a, with a tissue paper, but you can still audibly hear what he's saying. He's like, and I don't know if you can really consider it a confession. Cause all he says is, look, if you think I did it, I did it. Okay. That's right. I'll cop to it. I did it. I was out there and I killed those three boys. Is that really a confession? I don't know. You know? It's just so many bizarre things. Um, some of the some of the things also that are left out of the the, the documentary. They say it was like a, a a clean slate crime scene, and there was no blood there. Uh, yeah, there was. See, what happened was in 1993 or 94 when this was this trial was was held, luminol testing was not allowed. It was not admissible in Arkansas courts. So there are, if you go and you search. And I, the best, best place to go, and, I, and I'm sure that Seth will put a link to this on the webpage, is www.callahan, like Dirty Harry Callahan, .mysite.com. Fascinating website. It is maintained by one guy who thinks the West Memphis Three are innocent and one guy who thinks the West Memphis Three are guilty. They do something that none of the other websites about this do. They don't give their opinion. All it is is a clearinghouse for all the known documents that we have about the case. They have painstakingly taken the time to go to West Memphis because they can. It's because it's a closed case and it's part of the you know, Freedom of Information Act. You ask the West Memphis police, I want to see everything you have on, on you know, this triple homicide. They have to produce it to you. If you're, if you're a law-abiding, non-convicted felon American citizen, they have to give it to you. And they have done that. They've taken pictures. There's, there's, it allows you to look at everything objectively and make your own mind up without hearing a documentary slant or a, a website that says, oh, these guys are guilty and here's why. You know, that's why I like that website. But on that website, there are pictures of where they sprayed down luminol during the initial during the initial investigation and there was blood everywhere. There was blood everywhere. You know, um, but like I said, it, 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 everywhere you go with this case, it's crazy. In one of the confessions that wasn't used in court that Jesse Miss Kelly gave, he claimed that Damien Eccles uh, masturbated one of the boys, or I cut one of the boys' penises and then masturbated while he was doing it, and that that, that to the point of of, of, of ejaculating, and then r- rubbed the semen off on the boys' clothes. Remember, the clothes were found wrapped up around sticks and in the mud, right? Well, 
when they came about and part of what was why they were able to enter the Alfred plea, the new investigators said there was zero DNA on any of the evidence that linked any of the three convicted men. Well, if he had jacked off to the point of coming and then rubbed the, rubbed the cum off on the, on the boy's clothes, I don't care how long it sit, that DNA would have still been there, wouldn't it? I would imagine so, yeah, especially if it was just, I mean, <laughs> especially since they went back and found DNA evidence from hair. Right, right. And that's another thing. Uh, exactly. I said, this is so confusing because sometimes I'll say something, you're like, well, you must think these guys are innocent, Train. And then I'll say, well, you must think these guys are guilty. You remember Greg and Seth both. During all these documentaries, they talked, they, they, they kept repeating the documentaries. There was no physical evidence that linked the boys to the crime scene. You remember them saying that? Mm-hmm. Wrong. There was fiber evidence that was found at the crime scene on one of the boys and his clothes that matched fibers of a house coat that Jason Baldwin's mother owned. Why that was never brought up in court, I don't know. But it's there. It's documented. Yeah, like I said, it's easily accessible. One that's really always intrigued me is that Damien Eccles, and this is one that's really, really tough. Damien Eccles, they did, this is also readily available. Damien Eccles, the ringleader, the weirdest of the three, had a necklace that was taken as part of the investigation. And it was tested. It was found that there was blood on this necklace. There was blood that matched him and blood that DNA matched one of the, one of the victims. If he claimed to not know these three boys and wasn't involved, how'd that blood get on there? But we're talking 1993 DNA testing. And the sample was so small that there wasn't enough to retest it again in 2007. Every time you think you've, you've got it figured out, they throw you a curveball, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it's just the most bizarre case in the world. And, and one of the things that I wanted to talk about, I think is truly horrific, and this is where my Southern pride is going to come out. You guys aren't Southerners, but you guys know how proud I am to be a Southerner. Do you think there might have been some motivation by some of these these celebrity types, some of them were Southerners. I mean, Donnie Depp was raised in Florida, and the Dixie Chicks are our Southern gals. There's always been kind of a bias in the entertainment world against the South and how backwards we are, and that kind of might have been a, a, a even on a subconscious a motivating factor here. Well, look at these backwards Southern hillbilly Bubba cops. We got a chance to throw another one under mm-hmm. the bus. Do you see where I'm coming with that that school of thought? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it, it happens in. Movies it happens in TV. It happens in the wrestling world. I know it, mm-hmm. it, when when you have a Yank talking about Southern people, mm-hmm. you know that's toothless on the back porch with their three dogs with their, with their shotgun watching NASCAR. Right, and then they see some, a documentary like this, and it reinforces all their negative stereotypes, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah. e- even the West of Memphis, some of the accents that some of the the women had. I mean. It, it was a little tricky for me to understand them at first. And then, of course, you get used to accents, but they probably sounded rather normal to you, right? Oh, yeah. Some of my neighbors. Yeah. Sound like some of my family. But I know some of them were so heavy, like Jesse, Miss Kelly's father. There were a couple of times they had to essentially subtitle him talking because his draw is so thick, you know? And, and you know, I, I mean, it's, it's, let me put it this way. I love Eddie Vedder. I think he's a great songwriter. I've always liked Pearl Jam, and I'm not a big fan of grudge, but I like Pearl Jam, you know? But I also think, if Eddie Vedder sitting in Seattle, Washington, watched a documentary about three boys in California in similar situations, he wouldn't have given as much of his passion and his time to it as he did. You've, I, I just do. I don't. Mm-hmm. I really don't. I think he heard Arkansas, Satanic Panic, Small Town, you know, and then he made the jump. I'm not saying Eddie Vedder's a bad guy. I'm, not, I'm just saying, had this been the same situation in Chicago, Illinois, or Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, or you know anywhere else outside of the South. I'm not so sure people like Eddie Vedder and Johnny Depp jump on the bandwagon as fast. You know, they might jump on eventually, mm-hmm. but you know, um, and I think that's scary. And I think that it's I think, and I we can start to wrap this up. You know, and I would encourage everybody to to if if you're interested in this kind of stuff, it makes for a fascinating case study. It's like it's readily available. There's documentaries out there to look it up, but to be pre-warned, there is a lot. It, it, it's a very disturbing situation. Uh, but I think the real horror involved here is at a lot of levels. I think sometimes, like we just talked about, certain people will have a preconceived notion about regions or areas or something, and they'll jump to conclusions. I think obviously the the biggest horror is these three beautiful children are, are dead. You know, they're not coming back, and either. The people that killed them were not were released by the state of Arkansas, or they are truly innocent, and that still means there's a killer walking free, right? 
That mm-hmm. to me is the scariest thing. I think uh, I think it speaks to because of what happened to how powerful videos, documentaries can be and how much we can allow them to influence. I mean, look how obsessed I am with it, you know, and it has nothing to do with me. That's kind of scary. Um, no matter any way you look at it and whether you think the Westminster are guilty or innocent, I think everyone agrees there was there was there. This was a messed up investigation and the police dropped the ball. Mm-hmm. So that's scary. The the thought that our country, that the satanic panic and things of that things is that wasn't that long. 1993 was not that long ago for something that was similar to the Salem witch trials, you know, and that that kind of that kind of stereotyping and paranoia still plays into law enforcement investigations to this very day. That's kind of scary. You know, um, there's a lot of things I think can be gleaned from this. Like, oh, man, this is this is real life horror. This isn't Jason. This isn't Dracula. This is. Real life scary stuff. What are your thoughts on on, on the levels of, of, of scariness and, and what I'm talking about, Seth? Well, this is definitely something, if I was a child, my parents would not have let me watch because it would have scared the hell out of me. Uh, uh, so, because, you know, if you're, if you're that age, you think it's going to happen to you. Sure. Uh, but I do have some of what, what I call my, my skeptic questions here. Right. Obviously, the biggest question is if these guys didn't do it, who did? We may get to that, mm-hmm. but if it was a satanic ritual mm-hmm. and these guys are also innocent, wouldn't there have been more murders? You That's know? an interesting question. You know, yeah. uh, I'm no criminal investigator, but to my knowledge, the vast majority of murders, the victim knew their, their killer. Mm-hmm. And there is some evidence to point towards one of the stepfathers being, be, being the perpetrator, especially since, yeah, that was when they found uh, a hair fiber. Yeah, yeah, they, they found they found Terry Hobbs' hair and and uh, some a hair or something to uh, Jacoby, yeah, his, his, friends. his friends. Yeah, right. so was that, supposedly out looking for the boys with him that night. But then mm-hmm. again, once again, circumstantial evidence. I mean, there's transfer. I mean, I, you'd be amazed how many if you wore walk around your house, you'd be amazed how many of your hairs are everywhere. You know, right. Right, and he was the stepfather of one of the boys. You know, a lot is made into the fact that it was tied up in one of the knots that the boys were hogtied in. Well, here's an interesting thing about the knots that actually leads or were these guys or were the guilty. All three of the boys had not different knots tied on them. With the same per, if one person did the killing, would he have tied different knots on all three boys, or would the, all the knots been the same? You see what I'm saying? Right, he'd lean toward the, towards the latter. Exactly. Um, so I mean, like I said, every time you think you've got something figured out in this case. Curveball. Yeah. One big thing in the movie that I think is a valid point was when they showed the turtles that would have been in the in the water and that it wasn't mm-hmm. satanic ritual cuttings. It was the turtles just post postmortem animal predation, you know. Right. And, and I can tell you from a from, from as a fact, from living in a in a very similar climate to that, you know, that time of year, early it's right now, said as 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 we record, tomorrow will be the twenty fourth anniversary of these horrific murders. I could go out to the pond behind my behind the asylum right now, and they're snapping turtles and mosquitoes and snakes and right now. And if you were to throw anything dead, human or otherwise, and come back 24 hours later, it's going to have bites and scratch marks on it. You know, it just mm-hmm. is. So, yeah, you're right. Now, my final question here, and this is a question I don't think everybody's going to ask, mm-hmm. which is if these guys were guilty. uh and they essentially did this child molestation and child mutilation. Mm-hmm. How would have they gotten treated in prison? Because that's one of those crimes that's so heinous that even other convicted murderers would find despicable. Well, let me, let me speculate on that, and then I'm going to ask Greg a question. As far as Damien Eccles goes, he was almost in solitary confinement his entire time because he was on death row from day one. So that explains how he would have been able to survive. And he many times, in a lot of the documents you'll look at online, multiple times he, he tried to sue the state of Arkansas or enter in you know, legal proceedings saying he was mistreated in the prison, you know, that he got sick, was not given proper medical care, wasn't fed right. Like he, he claimed that he was, he was forced to eat with his hands. And there's documentation that he, and I can, I can tell you this from working at a lockdown facility like that, he was offered a plastic spork at every meal, and he refused it. So he was forced to eat with his hands, you know. So you know, I mean, come on. But you know, I- anyway, that's for him. Jesse Miss Kelly, and this is complete conjecture on my point. His father had done time, 
you know, um, for a crime in the, in the, in the 70s. So it's possible his father, who he's very close to, might have smartened him up on what to do and what to not do and what to say and what not to say to survive prison life. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And yeah. then as far as Jason Baldwin goes, I don't know. Because he was the youngest, and my God, he looked like a baby when, when he was convicted at 16, you know? I mean, he looked like a, he didn't look much older than the victims, even though he was 16. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how he did. But I think he, most of the time when it's – and I'm speaking from personal experience of having several friends that work in the corrections field – and and having you know having dealings with the juvenile justice department of the state of South Carolina because of my job, individuals who are convicted of those type of crimes are often separated. They're they're separatees for that very reason. The the states realize that they're going to be a target. You know what I'm saying? Um, there was unfortunately a young man that I went to church with growing up who was guilty of, confessed to, and was convicted and sentenced to, of molesting his two young nieces. And one of uh, the other members in our church, and he had mental issues, just like Damien did. So I'm not judging. It's not my place to judge. He'll answer to a higher judge one day, and so will I. But this young man uh, was advised by a, another member of our congregation who was a member of the uh, – was, was U.S. Marshal, who, of course, deals with the federal corrections department. He said, I would never tell another man to lie. But if they don't separate you when you go to jail, you tell everybody you stole a car. And he said, why? And he said, because you want to get out of prison alive in 10 years when your sentence is over. That's why. So take that for that adds credence to what you're asking, Seth. You know, mm-hmm. so Greg, at the beginning of this discussion, you brought up, you know, obviously the most horrific thing, especially as a father, these three, you know, these, these adorable little eight year old boys were horrifically murdered. But when I bring up all these other things that are also true horror, truly horrifying, if you look at every layer of this, uh, you got any comments on that? Or do you feel that that's do you see where I'm coming from? Or is that something maybe I'm overplaying a little bit? Uh, I wouldn't say you overplayed it. Yeah, it's um, tragedy on multiple levels, I would say. Um, yeah, first and foremost, um, yeah, that's the most appalling aspect and the most upsetting aspect is, uh, yeah, the loss of three children. Uh, that's. Yeah, the word nightmare doesn't adequately describe that sort no. of thing. No, not at all. But, I mean, you don't strike me as a huge conspiracy theorist, but I don't think you trust the police 100% either, do you? <laughs> or our government. <laughs> not in this situation. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, you know, I mean, what are your thoughts on, on the whole celebrity? Do you think, you know, because I remember when I asked you originally about it, you even said, yeah, this became kind of big. That was one of the first comments you made. But was, this was a big thing with a lot of celebrities. Uh, do you think this is more of them trying to make themselves feel better about themselves or they really truly felt like they saw themselves as these three boys? Or was it maybe some of the stuff they had some prejudices they didn't even realize or maybe a little bit of all of that? What do you think about that? Uh, it probably hit, struck a nerve because they um – they saw the boys as being singled out for being different, for being, um, mm-hmm. you know, into things that um, they might have been into themselves. Uh, and, and, yeah, being in being in a rock and roll, you know. <laughs> I mean, that's the worst crime in America, isn't it? Uh, once upon a time, yeah, I'm not. Yeah, if, if you like, if you like hip hop or rock and roll, you were just a bad person, right? <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. But I guess this is probably the big thing. A lot of our listeners are wondering. Where do you stand, Seth? Are the are the West Memphis Three guilty or innocent? And if you say they're innocent, who do you feel might have been the perpetrator, or do you even have an opinion? I really can't say for sure. Mainly just because I'm not as well versed in it as as you are. Uh-huh. Uh, the West of Memphis documentary certainly made you raise some eyebrows about mm-hmm. Terry Hobbs because mm-hmm. sure the way does. he was answering because it was the way he was answering those questions. Very evasive. Yes, just kind of being, oh, oh I, I have no memory of that. It just, he was answering the questions, and I, I'm not being, I'm not accusing by saying this, even though it's basically going to sound like I am. He was answering questions in the way somebody who believes his own BS would answer questions. Yeah, and I think it's, it, it's definitely, no matter where you fall on this, I think when you dig into it, there is no doubt Terry Hobbs has a troubled past and is a troubled individual. Mm-hmm. That, uh, I mean, it's documented. He has a criminal record. He has committed violent crimes uh, and he has a temper. I think that's, you, that cannot be denied no matter where you fall. 
So, yeah, it raises some questions. One, one thing I absolutely do not believe, and I think we all believe, that, that this wasn't any sort of satanic ritual. It seemed like oh, it, yeah. it was a premeditated strike. It might not have been, but but I, I do agree with you on that, that whether the West Memphis Three committed or not, I think that the satanic ritual part was completely played up by the police. That had nothing to do with it, no matter who committed it. You know, and That's baloney. And, yeah, that's a big part of what probably got people like Metallica involved, you know, uh, they really resented being painted with that kind of brush, you know? Right. I mean, I, cause I, I, I can say a lot of things about Metallica, especially early Metallica. Cause we're talking 93. So we're talking the black album had just come out, you know? Yeah. So we're talking uh, the heavier, heavier, true thrash days. Really their uh-huh. known albums at that point were their first four albums, which are all masterpieces of, of, of what I call true thrash metal. They were a lot of things, but satanic was not one of them, you know? There were a lot of other bands that I enjoy who I also do not think were satanic, but put on a lot more satanic overtones than they did. Like Slayer, yeah, like Ozzy, like Iron Maiden, like, like Dio. That those are the bands I would be more pointing my fingers towards than, than Metallica. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, so what say ye? I mean, you, you, you're like Seth, you're not as well versed as I am, but what's your thoughts? I mean, you've seen some of the documentaries. You think they're innocent or they're guilty. Or, and if you do think that they're innocent, you got any thoughts on who it might really be? I got to say innocent. And yeah, I came away from the documentaries thinking um, that surely it was John Mark Byers. That was, uh, I mean, of course, that's kind of what they were skewing towards mm-hmm. the documentary. But I found that I found that really hard to refute. Well, you know, and they, they bring that up in, in the third one because you haven't had that luxury of seeing that one, Greg. He's completely recanted his belief that they are guilty and he's now supports their innocence. To the point where he was a pen pal with Damien Eccles. He reads a letter in the third movie where Damien Eccles wrote him and apologized to him for calling him names. And, and he, he told him he appreciated him and he knew it took courage for him to admit it. So he's completely flipped the script. And I will say something about John, John Mark Byers. If you watch the first two movies, especially like Greg's talking about, he is quite theatrical, to say the least, is he not? <laughs> I mean, he's quite the character. And I do think, because I know guys like that, and I don't know if it's a Southern thing or an uneducated thing or if it's what. Yeah, he but was I've met, wasn't he? Say what? He was, he was medicated, too, wasn't he? Yes, he was. He was. Yeah, that might have played a little. Exactly. There you go. I, I think he played it up for the cameras a lot. You know, I, I also understand if he's guilty – that he's got a guilt on his conscience. And if he's not, he is truly, he's seen his adopted son be murdered. So you're going to be emotional either way. And that's going to skew your actions. You know what I'm saying? So he's quite theatrical, but I think at the end of the day, I don't, I, I don't think he's guilty. I mean, I know there was some suspicion laid on him. And, and one of the things I always found funny was one of the things that they bring up to say, oh, this is why he's guilty is because there was thought there might be bite marks. The ones you talked about earlier Seth, that looks like could have been by animals post-mortem well when they when they were trying to, to tie him to the crime they wanted oral imprint well for no reason he said he had his teeth pulled right after the bite mark thing came out couldn't explain why he had him pulled so that that leads suspicion but once again that's circumstantial on um the subject of the teeth he gave conflicting reasons for why he had them removed exactly exactly he, he said first he said it was his seizure medication then he said it was just because he had dental problems you know that so that's do you know what you know why he had his teeth removed? I got one word for you: meth. <laughs> That's why he had his teeth removed. I mean, I, I, if you look at a lot of the people in this that are involved in this whole case, there's some serious illegal drugs going on amongst everybody, except for a few of the cops and the, and the lawyers. I mean, well, I described at the beginning of this what kind of community West Memphis was. You know what I'm saying? So, right. I mean, I, I say that jokingly, but I, we all know. And most of our listeners know if you're educated, there are a lot of, of illegal and legal drugs that are that are abused that can cause oral and dental decay rapidly. You know, so it's not that hard to make that jump, I guess is what I'm saying when it comes to John Mark Byers. Now, for me, and I'm, I, this is the way I'm going to explain it, and this is going to sound odd. And if you need more may me to explain it more, let me know, either one of you. The case the prosecution presented, both originally and through all the appeals process, in my opinion, was not enough to convict those three men. Just wasn't. You know, I don't want to make the O.J. Simpson analogy, but it, it, it can be made because it's around the same time, you know? Mm-hmm. 
But I think it's an example of what we were talking about earlier. Another horrific part of this whole thing is police aren't perfect. And sometimes it's not the pretty, you know, this is not NCIS or CSI or, or, or law and order like we watch on TV where, you know, all the things fall in a row and it's a nice little puzzle and it's all wrapped up neatly in an hour. That's not the way real crime investigation goes. You know, mm-hmm. it's not. And this is a, a horrific reminder of that. But without that being said, I do not think that with the case presented, those men should have been convicted. But I will not go out on a limb and say I'm 100% sure they're innocent. I'm probably 70, 30, 80, 20 that they're innocent. You know, I'm leaning more towards they are innocent. But that brings up the question both of you have proffered. If they didn't do it, then who did? And why is this not being pursued? I think you know, that's, that's, that's the really sad part of the Alfred plea deal is essentially with that being closed down, because you have to think of where the state of Arkansas is coming from. They've got three guilty pleas for a homicide. These three men pled guilty. They can publicly admit all they want. They're innocent. The case is closed. You have three people who have now served time for a crime. Case closed. That's horrific, too. So that means the onus of finding out who the real killer is falls on the three guys who now are free claiming they're innocent. And they will probably indirectly do that because all three of them are attempting, or at least two of the three, are attempting to get full exonerations. And I understand that. And of course, if they're exonerated, that means somebody had to do it, which would reopen the case. But here's another horrific thing. And I say this publicly, with all due respect, to all those celebrities who I respect that they were passionate about something and put their, a lot of, I mean, a lot of money, like Peter Jackson, Eddie Vedder, their time and money into it. Where's your righteous indignation now that you've got the three guys who you feel are innocent or out of jail Where's your money and your time and your passion now that there, there's, a, in your minds, a killer walking free of three babies? Where is it now? Does it not make good PR? Is that now we're not hearing about it? Or do you just forget it? Or are they so convinced that, um, yeah, it's, um, yeah, there, there's, there, that, they ought, ought to keep that ball rolling, right? Now put your efforts into finding the real killer. Right. If you say that you're doing that by continuing to financially and emotionally support the West Memphis Three and being exonerated, knowing that the ultimate outcome of that will be the reopening of the case, great, right? But all I'm saying is you were there when it was when it was real camera friendly. Now where are you? So that's another level of just hor- horrifically scary to me. Uh, you know, I'm gonna, well, I think it's a good time to wrap this up. We've been going kind of long, but it's a fact. We could literally do four or five episodes two hours long each on this. Like we said, there's so many levels, but we encourage you to watch the documentaries, do your own research. And this just goes to prove that real life is always much scarier than the movies or the comic books or television. I think, don't you agree, gentlemen? Oh, yes, absolutely. One big takeaway I have from this, trying to keep it lighthearted. Uh, as, mm-hmm. I mean, go back to the lighthearted is that uh, I would much prefer to remember West Memphis, Arkansas as the hometown of psycho Sid vicious. Yeah. Or Howling Wolf or B.B. King or some of the other blues greats that live there in the 20s. I have to agree with you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, just so you know, FYI, I thought this might be interesting to wrap up with this. Where are the three West Memphis three now? Jesse Miss Kelly has moved back to West Memphis and is the only of the three. He has separated himself from the other two and is wants to live a quiet life. And when, when you know, around this time of year, every year on the anniversary, you know, the news, local news will show up, want to interview him. And his daddy will say, he ain't taking no interviews. And when he's asked, his dad will say, we also want to help railroad him into jail in the first place. Why would he want to talk to you? That's the truth. Mm-hmm. I mean, because the satanic panic was really, that was really bolstered by the media. That's that, that I believe, you know, Damien Eccles, he's doing great. He's got a beautiful wife that he married in, 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 you know, in prison. They're still together. They never planned to go back to Arkansas. They lived in New York for a while, rent free in Peter Jackson's uh, apartment there in Tribeca but have since bought their own home and live in Salem, Massachusetts, believe it or not. He said he felt drawn there because he felt like he could relate to the witches of Salem back in the day. Ironic, huh? Mm-hmm. And uh, he's, he's quite the celebrity. He's, he's, he's sold a lot of his artwork for a lot of money that he did in, in prison, and he's written his memoirs and written some books, and he's helped, he's helped Pearl Jam write the lyrics for a couple of their songs, and he does the, the, his book tours with Johnny Depp, and he owns a tattoo parlor and uh yeah he's doing great i mean he's all in the spotlight and he kind of soaking it up and and you know 
when I see that, I go, did this whole situation not teach you anything about don't be the guy that sticks out? But I digress. Oh, and the last West Memphis three, Jason Baldwin. Uh, he's interesting. He's of the three of the three West Memphis three. He's the one that's always been the real oddball to me. I could figure out Jesse Miss Kelly and I could figure out Damian Eccles because they remind me so much of the boys that I work with. Mm-hmm. Jason Baldwin's the oddball. He was the only one that wasn't a high school dropout. He was very talented in art. He has since moved to Seattle uh, on the suggestion of Eddie Vedder. Loves it. Uh, works at a construction company. Uh, is married. Has a kid. And was working heavily with the Innocence Project. He feels he was innocent. They help other people that feel they're innocent get out of jail. Uh, side note, when the Alfred pleas were first proffered by the prosecution, he was the only one that balked. He said, I will stay in prison till the day I die and fight this because I didn't, I'm not going to admit publicly or privately that I did this because I didn't do it. And what changed his mind was he essentially realized if I don't take, cause it was an all or nothing. That was the deal given by the prosecution. If I don't take this plea, they could execute Grant. They could execute Damien before all the appeals are done. And that's the only reason he took the plea. He's been very public about that. But he, he had a, a pretty good media, social media presence until 2014. And then he kind of got tired of it. And he's kind of dropped off the radar. So there's not a lot more to report on him either. So, you know, the one who was considered the charismatic leader and was, you know, the ringleader, he's still in the limelight and seems to be enjoying it. And the other two have kind of tried to forget it. And uh, as far as the families of the victims go, uh, Terry Hobbs, of course, thinks they did it because he's a prime suspect. Um, Pam Hobbs, uh, his ex-wife, believes that they are innocent and help them. Like we brought up earlier, John John Mark Byers uh, believes they're innocent and has changed his tune to that now. The mother of the child, she unfortunately died a few years ago uh, of uh, drug-related stuff. And uh, the other two parents, uh, Steve um, Michael Moore's parents, have left West Memphis and have been have stayed the most out of the limelight of all the parents and still openly repeat. They believe the, the West Memphis three are guilty and that Arkansas released three guilty men. So that's where we stand on the case. And it's like, I said, it's fascinating um, to lighten it up. I think we can all agree on two things. One, and everything we talked about West Memphis, Arkansas is not really a place. Any of us want to live. <laughs> that was one of my big takeaways. <laughs> and, and two, if you can stomach the, the graphic pictures, but you enjoy mullets, boy, the coverage from 93, 94 West Memphis is, is for you, man. There's some sweet mullets going on. <laughs> I mean, Jesse Miss Kelly, when they, are, when they arrest him, he's got a mullet and steps going on at the same time. Are you kidding me? This guy had two 80s hairdos at the same time. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, even John, even John Mark Byers was balding in 94 and had a mullet working, man. He had, you know... Party in the back, you know, business in the front going. <laughs> Those are some, but anyway, I, so I figure we need a little bit of levity after a real you know, 30, 40 minute talk about some serious heavy stuff. Uh, you know, I, this is getting a little heavy and a long episode, but I think it was fun. I enjoyed it. Uh, maybe we'll get back into nothing but the fictional world next next time, but I don't know. But until then, remember, remember, uh, kiddies, don't ever go camping at Crystal Lake. Don't ever go trick-or-treating in Haddonfield. And don't ever, don't ever fall asleep in Springfield. Until then, remember to stay out of the dark. Geek Bill Radio. Well, like I said, this was pretty graphic, pretty dark stuff. But I hope you either enjoyed or learned something from this, and hopefully realized that yeah, not all of the stuff we do here, Geek Geekville Radio, is fun and games. Some of it does get pretty dark, but the horror genre really is a form of geekery as well. That brings us to the end of day 13 of Napod Pomo. We're approaching the halfway point. We're going to be there before we know it. And I got several things lined up. I'm actually not sure what I'm going to put up next as of this recording. So I'm not going to reveal any details or tease anything because, quite frankly, like I said, I got so many things lined up. I'm just not sure which one I'm going to do next. So this has been Geekville Radio. You can find us at geekvilleradio.com. Also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Geekville Radio. We are also where we're also where you find your podcasts: Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Morse Code. Um, no, not really Morse Code, but that, okay. maybe we can try it. 
Drop us a line. Let us know what we're doing well. Let us know what we're not doing so well. Give us a follow. Give us a subscription. Give us a, give us a subscribe. Give us a review. As I always say, I like all feedback, especially when it's genuine. So we're going to turn out the lights here in the Geekville Radio Studios on uh, Monday the 13th, which in a way is kind of scarier than a Friday the 13th, but that's just one person's opinion. And we will be back with our 14th day of Napod Pomo Geekville Podcast Anthology. Examining the Dead is part of the Geekville Radio Network and part of the Wrestling Brethren Podcast family and do not represent the opinions of Geekville Radio or any of their affiliates. Examining the Dead is not sponsored or endorsed by any product or service unless specifically stated. Some media used on Examining the Dead is part of its respective copyright owners, all rights reserved. Theme music by Kevin McLeod can be found at incompetech.com. Thank you.